the service are believers and beloved. So the, the reality existed that slavery was a part of the culture that Paul was in when he wrote 1 Timothy. Paul didn't approve of or endorse slavery, but as that was a social construct of his time, he taught how to live shaped by the gospel even if you were a slave. And some of us have at times felt like slaves in the different workplaces we've been in too, haven't we? Have you ever felt like a slave in your workplace environment? I don't know, there's been jobs where I have. No one's brave enough. <laughs> but what is the timeless principle that Paul is giving us here? We might not be slaves, but what's the timeless principle? Well, in our work, we are ambassadors for Christ. If for no other reason the fact that God has placed their masters in a position of control over them, Christian slaves were expected to hold their masters in the highest regard. That's the same for us in our workplaces. Such a respectful outlook would result in the kind of service that wouldn't bring discredit to the doctrine or the God that the slave served. And that is true for us as well in our workplaces. We are ambassadors for Christ wherever we go, including our workplaces, and so our conduct should represent God well. A second motivation for Christian slaves to treat their owners with respect and loyalty was that they were brothers and sisters in Christ. Since they were therefore even more deserving of respect than unbelieving masters, they should treat them well, serve them well. And given that the recipient of the slave's work was a fellow uh, uh, follower of Christ, you know, disrespectful work and, and shoddy work, not only unacceptable, but pretty inappropriate. And in this culture, there was a good, a real chance that a good slave would be granted freedom. And so it was to the benefit of the slave in the long term also to do well in their work and attitude. You see, our attitude in our work is really important. Are we at work just for the money, just for the paycheck, and so we do the bare minimum to just scrape by? Or do we give of our best and approach our work like how we approach our work for the Lord? I was employed by a federal government agency at one time. That role required seven weeks of training as we had to learn not only legislation and how that operated, um, but also all the processes and all the IT systems. And my approach to this new role was to give it my best and to represent Christ well in my workplace. I'm a fairly fast learner and everything just seemed to click for me. And I was quickly competent in what was being taught. However, that wasn't the culture of that department, to be quickly competent. They didn't value competency and productivity highly. Their values were more about how people felt. And so when some of the people in the same training group as I was in, when they weren't getting it and they saw that I was, they weren't given extra coaching or extra training to bring them up to speed. Oh, no. 
that might have made them feel even worse. No, their approach was to reprimand me for making other people feel bad because they weren't learning at the same pace that I was. They actually said this to me, those people will last here longer than you even if they never gain competency that you have now, even if it takes them two years, they will last longer than you because they don't make other people feel bad. <laughs> that was my boss. I really struggled with that rebuke from my boss because every single working day of my life up until that point was solely focused on my worth as an employee being measured by my output. I used to generate $34 million of sales from my desk and my value to the company was assessed on how much work was done, not by how everyone else felt. And so I had to learn how to adapt to that workplace environment so I was still representing Christ well. I had to learn how to shield my competence from those around me. And I had to learn how to slow down and stop working so hard. That was completely foreign concept. And that was hard. But if I valued those around me and wanted to be supportive of those I worked with, under that environment, that was what was required even if it went against every instinct that I had. So how do you approach the places that you work? Either unpaid or as a volunteer, the principle remains, you are an ambassador of Christ. Your attitude towards your work and towards your boss and those in authority over you speaks volumes about your life. Is it shaped by the gospel in your workplace as well? And if you're a student, you can easily apply that to the classroom in the attitude and approach you take to your work there and to those in authority at your school. It's worth fighting whatever may stop us from living life shaped by the gospel in our workplaces and schools. You know, maybe you need to fight the temptation and pressure to homogenise you know, into being the same as everyone else when standing out might be uncomfortable. But if you're standing out for the right reasons, then that's worth fighting for. Take comfort in Paul's words from Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul then returns to addressing false teachers, as he already has done several times in this book of 1 Timothy, and he describes their actions, their attitudes, the fruits and their motivation. He says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. But godliness with contentment, sorry. There. Anyway, I'll keep going. It's not on the screen. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which provide envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth. Imagine that godliness is a means of gain. So when someone's life is shaped by something other than the gospel, when they encounter the gospel, there will be controversy and argument. 
There will be distraction from keeping the main thing the main thing. Our effective witness to the community as a church and as individuals could be sidetracked and even prevented by our focus being taken over by controversy and argument rather than sharing the love of Christ and the hope of his gospel. You know, the current of our culture only fuels controversy and arguments as well. Like, how do we respond in our workplaces, volunteer organisations, sporting clubs and community groups in the current of culture when it comes to Pride Days or alcohol or coarse language or anything else that goes against what we believe in? Well, we keep the main thing the main thing. We focus on the love that Christ has for everyone and the hope of the gospel that God has provided for everyone and we keep the main thing the main thing. Don't allow the current of culture to stop you from sharing the love of Christ and the hope of his gospel. It's worth the fight internally to keep the main thing the main thing because we live in culture. We can't escape it. But this week of all weeks has been one of the hardest things to try and escape things, all right? You know what I'm talking about. How do we live in culture but not be of culture? We do that by fighting to keep the main thing the main thing. And Paul then urged Timothy to remember that true and great gain comes from the acquisition of godliness, which includes an attitude of contentment with our material possessions. It does not come from teaching godliness to others primarily to receive pay for doing so. They would demonstrate an attitude of discontent with our material possessions. And he writes in verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content." But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You know, material things are momentary. There's no connection between godliness and material possessions. Possessions are simply tools that we can use to bring glory to God. Having the basic necessities of life, like food, clothing and shelter, we can and should be content. That's why something like Thread Together is such an amazing thing to partner with, to help meet the needs for the basic necessities in life so that people are free to then focus on other areas of their life, to improve there, to meet that need so that we can stop worry and concern, to help restore dignity amongst those who are finding life difficult, to restore the ability for these people to find contentment because they are clothed. You know, I'm so thrilled that we'll be bringing Thread together to the church meeting next week to vote on formally so that our process is all above reproach. And what a great opportunity we have to utilise Thread Together as an organisation to deliver this vital service to our community as a church. You see, the main problem with materialism is that it is a desire to possess things 
instead of a love for the God who made those things. That's a trap and a snare. So many people always want more. But godliness with contentment is what? Is great gain. Godliness with contentment. Be happy with what you have been blessed with. If you have a place to sleep, clothes on your back and food in your belly, that's enough. If it's not enough and you spend all your energy in the pursuit of more and more and more, rather than pursuing love for the God who made those things, then that's a good chance to take a check on where your priorities are at. You know, Paul knows that man is only satisfied in God. As a result, commitment to God is the first requirement for this genuine fulfilment and contentment with one situation in life is the second. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a famous Welsh physician turned preacher and he made the following comments in an address delivered to the Literary and Debating Society at Westminster Chapel on February 6, 1925, nearly a hundred years ago, shortly after becoming a member of the Royal College of Physicians. He said, of course, the fallacy which underlies all these things he was speaking about the pursuit of money, is a very old one. It is that if you are wealthy, you are happy. Quite by accident, it has been my lot to be able to study a large number of wealthy men at close quarters. These included the British Prime Minister David Lloyd George, Rudyard Kipling, King Edward VII, and many other wealthy and prominent members of the British nobility who were patients of his mentor, Dr Thomas Horder, Chief of Staff at... St Bartholomew's Hospital in London, to whom Lloyd Joes was, was chief clinical assistant. He said, <clears throat> The conclusion at which I have arrived concerning them has been that they are intensely miserable people, their misery being exceeded only by those who worship wealth and have it not. Some wise words from over 100 years ago. And we could turn to that great philosopher Jim Carrey, who said, I wish that people would gain all the wealth in the world to realise that that is not where happiness comes from. So how can we live as Christians and how can we learn to be content with simple living? Well, certainly not by accepting the standards set by our culture. Paul suggests that an eternal perspective and an attitude of detachment towards things are prerequisites. As an internal perspective develops, dependence on material things will decline. As our lives continue to be shaped by the gospel, our desires will be shaped more by an internal perspective and our dependence upon material possessions for happiness will be replaced by a contentment in God. A simple lifestyle demonstrates contentment with the basics of life. Whereas in contrast, greed for more opens the door to temptation. And then this temptation comes in the form of unwise, lustful desires for wealth, power and or pleasure. You know, they impede our spiritual progress like a trap holds an animal that gets snared by it. If we don't break free and turn away from it, we will eventually suffer spiritual ruin and personal destruction. See, the root attitude of greed bears all sorts of evil fruit in wicked actions. 
You know, and it's only the love of money, not money itself, that Paul says is the snare. It's possible to have very little money and yet to love it. Some people have much money yet don't love it. Love of money contrasts with love of God and love of our neighbour, the two loves that a Christian should be drawn to. Charles Barclay writes, To seek to be independent, to be able to pay one's debts, to provide a house and a home and an opportunity for one's families, prudently to provide for the future is a Christian duty. But to evaluate everything in terms of money, to make the love of money the driving force of life, cannot ever be anything else than the most perilous of sins. Now Paul's point is that we should seek godliness more diligently than we seek money and the things it can buy. Just think of Jesus' teaching to the rich young ruler. You know, it's only in Christ that we find true contentment, not money. And later in verse 17, Paul addresses those who are rich. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are, not, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul is pretty clear in saying what is truly life is not money. It's not wealth, it's not prosperity, it's contentment in God. Since God will determine our future financial resources, rich people should put their hope in the giver rather than his gifts. God controls all of the resources and since he has given us what we have, we can enjoy his gifts, we can take pleasure in the fact that they free us from certain temptations and they enable us to help others. And Paul advised Timothy to encourage the wealthy to see their wealth as God's means of enabling them to carry out good deeds. They should create a reputation for being wealthy in good deeds rather than having a reputation just for having a lot of money. They should also be generous, open-handed and prepared to give away what God had given them. By doing so, they'd be making sure that the Lord would reward them for being good stewards. When they stood before him, they would be making an investment in the treasure of a solid foundation for the future. And by doing this, they would experience their everlasting life to the fullest. You know, it's not sinful to be rich. By world standards, we are all rich. It's not sinful. It's also not godly to be poor. God has given wealthy Christians resources for ministry that other Christians do not possess. And with these resources come the temptations and opportunities to misuse them. And those who are wealthy shouldn't feel guilty for that. However, a wealthy Christian should cultivate the joy that comes from laying up treasure in heaven by investing their life and wealth in what will endure forever. Not material gain, but spiritual in verse 11, Timothy is instructed, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. And following God, 
Timothy and we also should pursue virtues that are different from the acquisition, acquisition of wealth for selfish purposes. We should emphasise what the Holy Spirit seeks to produce in the life of someone who is shaped by the gospel and what is essential for a leader of God's people. And so there is righteousness, which includes all attitudes and actions in harmony with what God calls right. He says godliness. It's, it's, it's like God-like character and conduct. Faith is trust in God. Love is selfless devotion to the needs of others. Perseverance is faithful continuance through adverse or discouraging circumstances. Keep going. And gentleness is tender kindness towards others. You know, the first two of these qualities are general characteristics that represent our relationship with God. The second two are specific attitudes that animate the Christian life. And the third two are specific dynamic character qualities that define correct ways of relating to a hostile world, to our culture. Together, these six traits draw a silhouette of a life shaped by the gospel. Did you notice that judgment's not there? How are we to live in, in our culture, in the current of our culture? Did you see judgment's missing? We're not to judge. What does it say? Persevere, right? Love, gentleness. Like, that's how we're to respond. And from these six traits, we are to fight. For the, fight the good fight of the faith not of people's ideology, but fight for faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And our spiritual enemy opposes the Christian's pursuit of godly ideals. The goal is worth fighting for and it requires fighting for. You know, possessing eternal life is one thing. We all have that upon coming to a saving faith in Jesus but taking hold of it, that's another thing. The first is static. The second is dynamic. The former depends on God and the latter depends upon us. The former comes through faith alone, yet taking hold requires faith plus obedience. But our fight only lasts until the Lord appears, which Paul believes, and so do I, that could happen at any moment therefore we need to persevere he says i charge you in the presence of god who gives life to all things and of christ jesus who in his testimony before pontius pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our lord jesus christ which he will display at the proper time he who is the blessed and only sovereign the king of kings and lord of lords who alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion amen what a wonderful passage of scripture god who gives life to all things and indeed gives us life is observing us we live under the gaze of Christ. And so we should live worthy of the gospel to which we have been called. The gospel of the God who is sovereign, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, who dwells in unapproachable light, 
whom we honour for all eternity. And then to conclude his letter to Timothy, Paul says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by, by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Paul finishes this letter with the encouragement to again keep the main thing the main thing because the main thing is worth fighting for. The hope of the gospel is worth fighting for. Bringing that hope to our community is worth fighting for. Our responsibility is to spread that hope actively and obediently in a variety of ways. Not everyone is going to be able to do it all. But that's why God has brought many of us together to accomplish more, something greater than we could accomplish apart. Some have already expressed excitement and willingness to be involved in Thread Together. Others served in our children's and mainly music ministries or in our youth and young adults or our worship team or leading Bible studies in so many different ways. No one can do it all and no one is expected to do it all. But that's the best and that's the blessing of being part of a community that is shaped by the gospel, being part of, the gos of a gospel-centred church. No one person has to do it all, but as family, we get it done as each of us contribute in areas and ways that God has gifted, shaped and called us into. It is a thing of beauty how being shaped by the gospel builds community as we keep the main thing the main thing as we cultivate lives of godliness and prayer, as we lead others, as we serve others, as we care for family and our community, and as we fight for what is worth fighting for. See, the gospel is worth fighting for. The gospel is the answer to the world's problems. It is the pathway to eternal life. It is the source of our salvation and the gospel is the hope of the world. So my encouragement to you today is this. As you live a life shaped by the gospel in community, fighting against the current of culture, keep the main thing the main thing and be active in bringing the hope of the gospel in as many ways as you can and to as many people as you can. And that wraps up our series on 1 Timothy. Next week, we're jumping into 2 Peter. So if you want to get a head start, feel free, but let me pray for you. Almighty God, we come before you. And Lord, we, we come humbly before you. Lord, we thank you that you have brought us together as a church family. And that we can indeed accomplish more together than what we can apart. So Lord, help us live lives that are shaped by the gospel in all the spheres of life. As we do have to indeed fight against the current of culture to keep the main thing the main thing. And to be active in bringing the hope of the gospel in as many ways as we can and to as many people as we can. But Lord, we acknowledge that you are the blessed and only sovereign. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You alone are immortal. 
You dwell in unapproachable light. And Lord, to you we give honour and praise and glory forever. Be with us. Help us guard what has been deposited to us. Help us avoid things that distract us. But Lord, help us focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of our salvation that is free to all who respond in faith alone. And Lord, may you be with Brody and Sway as they go through the waters of baptism in a moment. Lord, I pray that, Lord, this will be a, a moment in time where they look back with great fondness for the rest of their life. That was the moment where they publicly declared their faith in you and in obedience to you went through the waters of baptism. As they aligned themselves with your death and resurrection. And Lord, may they continue on in the newness of life that they have in you. And may we all continue to live lives shaped by the gospel, we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, Faye, if you'd like to come and lead us in worship, because we all want to celebrate this morning. And what better way than to do that than to raise a hallelujah to the God who has saved us. So let's stand and sing.